Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Hello. Thank you for joining us. It's lovely to be with you again. Now, we've been talking on the show in a couple of weeks ago about cervical cancer and also the uh, vaccines that were the HP, the, the, um, the vaccine against the HPV, which was rolled out in, uh, in, in primary schools in South Africa. And we're all very excited about it. Seems there's more to be excited about when it comes to fighting cervical cancer. Well, actually, all cancers, Reedy, because the field of immunotherapy, this is using the immune system to attack tumours, is really moving on now. And I was just talking to a researcher at the University of Cambridge yesterday, where I work, and he, he has a history in looking at this kind of thing. And scientists are getting really close now to understanding how to get the immune system to selectively attack cancer cells in the body, because this has been a really big problem with cancer. Why, in the past, did our immune spot response ignore cancer cells and allow cancers to grow. And what researchers are now discovering are various ways of manipulating the immune system so that the tumour cells can be recognised as foreign. The immune system then goes all around the body, whether the cancer is spread or not, attacks the tumour cells selectively and then removes them. And the benefit of this is that then you don't attack healthy tissue, you just remove the tumour. But when the tumour's mm-hmm. all gone, the immune response stops. And they're getting very close now to being able to do this quite effectively in a number of different disorders. The, the stumbling block has been that there's various ways that the cancer recruits other cells into it which are not cancerous cells but they have an immune dampening effect they switch off the immune response and discovering how that works was was something that held things up for a while but it's definitely looking very encouraging now Mm-hmm. Very, very encouraging indeed. All right, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. But just a follow-up question on that, uh, Chris. When, when therapies like immunotherapy uh, work, how long does it take for them to be rolled out from the point where they are deemed to be successful to them becoming mainstream? What is that process? process? Oh, that's a very good question. And you've made a very important point, which is that the the, the pharmaceutical companies have a sort of 10 year sort of trajectory with these sorts of things. They estimate that it takes them about 10 years and 10 billion. And that's usually US dollars to go from a test tube with a chemical in it to a therapy that's usually being rolled out routinely and safely in patients because of all the clinical trials that are necessary to prove that the compound is safe, to prove that the compound works, and then also to optimise the compound, identify what the side effects are and find out who it's best to use it on. So it does take a long while, but that's because of safety, because the kinds of agents that people are now beginning to develop 
They're very bespoke, they are very powerful, and they can have a very uh, strong impact on how the immune system works. And if you mess this up, then there could be serious side effects. So it's, it's very important yeah. to be cautious with these things. But with diseases like cancers that don't hang around, sometimes you have to move quickly. And I've seen some of the papers that have been published, and there was a gentleman who was given just literally weeks to live, and he had disseminated melanoma, a, a kind of cancer that arises in the skin. And doctors tried this approach on him, and within six weeks they couldn't detect any cancer cells in his body. All right, our lines are open for you. What do you want to ask? Is it Robert in Somerset West? Good morning. Good morning. Yes. I want to know, um, using naphthalene marbles in cupboards against fish moths, is it carcinogenic? Is it safe to use them? Hello, Robert. As far as we know, naphthalene isn't going to cause you to get cancer uh, at the sorts of doses that we put it in mothballs and things. So you should be okay. But uh, these sorts of chemicals, that they are linked to possible health disbenefits, let me say. So if you were to expose yourself to very large amounts of them and the chemicals that are related to them, there might be a health problem. But I don't think there's any evidence that naphthalene mothballs, at the dose that you're going to be exposed to, will have a negative effect on your health. I think you're okay. The moths, on the other hand, they don't like them. They'll stay away. So your clothing will be in a much better state. Okay, Leslie in Pretoria East. Good morning. Yeah, hi, Chris. Um, I want to know, how do you find out what is the real colour of a comedian? Of a comedian or a chameleon? <laughs> a chameleon. Chameleon. Oh, sorry, I was, comedian. <laughs> I, was, I was being a comedian, so I wasn't, I wasn't being rude. Well, the, the, the way that chameleons actually have a colour, because if you look at a, a, a chameleon, someone phoned me up once and said, well, chameleons change colour, what colour are they when they're dead? And uh, then someone else phoned in and said, well, my dead chameleon is brown. <laughs> Not, I don't think that was on an advanced state of decomposition. I think it was just that when it first died, it went brown. Mm. Chameleons actually make their colours using a very elegant system, which is replicated in a range of different bits of nature. They have these systems called chromatophores. If you look in their skin, you see that there are several layers of these colour-giving cells, chromatophores. Uh, the top layer, uh, and, and well, in fact, there's about four of them, What they have in them are cells, and in the cells are colour molecules which are in tiny packets inside the cell called vesicles. And the cells, these chromatophores, are wired up to both the hormones in the blood and also the chameleon's nervous system. Mm -hmm. When the chameleon wants to change colour, it sends nerve signals or hormone signals either around the blood or down the nerve cell the chromatophore sees those signals by using chemical receptors on its surface. This triggers the little packets of colour inside those individual chromatophores to discharge. So instead of the uh, paint, if you like, all being sequestered in a paint pot, it's rather like you throwing the paint up the wall. It goes all over the cell, inside the cell, making that cell, that chromatophore, change colour. And because there are different layers of these chromatophores, there are red ones, the iridophores on the top, there are xanthophores underneath which are yellow, uh, there are um, guanine containing blue ones at the bottom um, all of those different colours mix together in the same way that mixing different paint colours together gives you a, a specific colour and by using different combinations of them the chameleon will influence the, the colour it appears to be and chameleons don't do this to blend into their environment, that's a myth oh. they actually do it as a signalling process uh, the reason they do it is to send other chameleons messages so when they're calm and happy they're a pale green colour when they're feeling randy then they oh. uh, put on a, a flush to impress the ladies Whoa. and when they're feeling <laughs> angry they put on a very different 
different flush to encourage other males to think, well, this is a big guy. He looks angry. I'm going to stay away. Whoa, I have an aha moment. I'm not going to watch Nigel Wild with the same uh, eyes again. It's a different prism now, now that I've learned what I've just learned. Chameleons, I'm watching this afternoon. I'm sure there'll be something uh, on the programming lineup. Thanks for asking the question, Leslie. I'm so excited. Can you hear my voice, Thomas? Yeah, let's take a break. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. All right, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567 or Peter in Sandringham, good morning. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Rudy. How are you? We're fine. What's your question, Peter? Good, good. A question for Chris. How do they plant seedless fruit? Seedless fruit. Hi, Peter. Yeah, it seems a good question, doesn't it? Because you have these grapes and you think, well, there are no pips in here, so where did the plant that made these come from? Same with bananas. The bananas don't have any seeds in them, so how do bananas reproduce? And the answer is they're, for the most part, all clones. In other words, you go to the plant, you take a cutting from the plant, and you grow a new plant. Bananas do send up suckers from their roots, and you can chop those off and along with a little bit of root, put that in a pot and you've got a new banana plant. The downside of these sorts of clones is that they're all genetically identical to each other. And the problem with that is that if a pest comes along that can exploit a particular genetic vulnerability in those plants, it's a bit like computers, where if you've got an antivirus system with a vulnerability in it and a virus comes along that can exploit it, it can very quickly copy itself to every computer using that system. Same with the plants. We think that that's what caused the Irish potato famine in the 1800s when hundreds if not thousands of people died in Ireland because a fungus turned up which we've now identified actually from museum specimens they know exactly what fungus it was and this wiped out the potato crop because potatoes are the same you just take a potato bung it in the ground and it produces a whole load more potatoes but they're all genetically identical Uh, it does turn out though that bananas do make a small number of seeds About 1 in 7,000 banana plants produce bananas with some seeds. They're not very tasty, but they do have seeds that are fertile, and so researchers can use those to breed new, new varieties and then clone those to produce bananas that don't have seeds so they're nice and tasty to eat. And at the moment we are facing the th- a threat towards our popular Cavendish banana, and mm-hmm. this is because there is a fungus called Panama disease which is attacking the banana plants and so researchers are interested in trying to find new strains of banana which are more resistant to it we've already lost one banana a very small sweet banana called the gros michel which i think was wiped out by another fungal disease previously thank you very much peter thank you um let's go to john john in durbanville good morning hi morning guys um i just wanted to find out if one burns uh wood or anything organic he's left with ash and as, as i understand it that's carbon um, is that the end of the process or could you actually burn carbon or is carbon non-flammable? Hi John, actually in ash there will be a little bit of carbon but on the whole there's mainly just the, the inorganic chemicals that were in the wood left behind. There'll be a lot of sodium, there'll be a lot of potassium, hence the name potash. There'll be some phosphorus in there in the form of phosphates. There'll be some other chemicals including some sulphur and some nitrates, silica, bit of aluminium so ash is mainly all salt and the reason there's very little carbon left is that every time you have a nice braai or barbecue uh, you're using charcoal when someone's made charcoal all they've done is to take wood and burn the wood in a low oxygen condition and all of the volatile chemicals come out and get burned off but it leaves behind the carbon 
And so when you light charcoal, you are lighting almost pure carbon. The carbon reacts with oxygen in the air, so C, carbon, plus O2 from the oxy from oxygen in the air goes to CO2, carbon dioxide, and that goes up the chimney or out of your bry. So uh, as a result, ash contains very little carbon except in the parts of the ash where uh, it was so far under the ash that the oxygen couldn't get to oxidise that carbon. Okay, that's John in Durbanville. Is then oh, okay? That's not another do John. Um, Colisi is it in Colisi in Acadia? Good morning. Morning, really. Mm. I just recently found out that I had Indian ancestry in me, so I wanted to find out how would I go about tracing that ancestry? Where do I go, and uh, what's the procedure? What's the process? And, and I understand you asked my producers, can you trace your ancestry through science apart yes, from uh, the normal research just, of doing without, without actually tracking tra down the people? Is oh. it possible to go and? Yeah. have my blood tested somewhere. I understand what you're asking. Chris? Well, you can do this, and lots of people are doing this or using this technique and technology to find out who their relatives were. Most of them are people trying to understand things like whether the king buried under a car park in the north of England was really uh, one of our early monarchs or not, and it turned out that he was, using DNA techniques. But it's not too easy when you're somebody who doesn't actually have any relatives who are around with remains of those relatives that you can uh, say, well, is this my relative or not? What you can do, though, is to have a look at what genes you carry, and there are quite good population-based analyses now which will look at what genes are carried by what sorts of populations because we know that when in the early days of sort of human migrations and, and populations not being that mobile once they settled in an area uh, and then migrated later we know that certain genes are concentrated in those populations and so what you can do is to have a look at the genes that are in you you look for various markers in your DNA and then you can ask the database uh, what populations in the world do these sorts of genes tend to crop up in the most and so you can sort of trace your origins that way and that's what researchers have done for aboriginal peoples in australia and some of the pacific islands because there's a really big question about we know people left africa 55 60,000 years ago where did they go and in what order and aborigines which were in australia for at least 40,000 years how did they get there and what route did they take where did they come from are they related to the other individuals the aborigines that are up in china or some of the other south pacific islanders and it's using precisely these techniques looking at the genes they carry and comparing it with other populations and uh, and historical historical records of what we thought the migration patterns might be to work out where someone has come from. But if you're looking to trace a long-lost grandfather uh, and then work out who your current surviving cousin 15 times removed is, that's a bit more tricky because you'd have to test loads and loads of people to confirm those sorts of matches. But you could certainly find out broadly where you came from and even in some cases which bit of certain continents you came from because there are enclaves of genes that are much more common in certain populations. Mm. Tiro, I love your question because I do exactly the same thing that you are about to uh, expose. Tiro, in Bedford View. Hi, um, I'd like to ask why is it that we, when we women apply mascara, open our mouth? Okay, your, your line, I think, oh. I think there was an echo there, but why do we do that? You apply mascara and your mouth is wide open. <laughs> I don't know because I don't often apply mascara. <laughs> is this is this true? Do, do women do this? Yeah, yeah. All of everybody's nodding. Angelita is nodding. Nalwazi is nodding. I'm nodding. That's exactly what happens. You apply mascara. Wow. It's almost a, a balanced thing. Like somehow it helps you not poke your eye. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying now do to you, apply do you think it with it my mouth. Could be um, because obviously you want to do 
do the upper and the lower eyelashes. Do you think it's because when you open your mouth, you sort of stretch your face down a little bit, and it has a very subtle effect of maybe making the eyelashes curl down slightly more on the lower lid to make that slightly easier to apply there? Do you, do you think it's got a sort of face distorting effect that, that benefits mascara application? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think if you're doing the, the, the upper one, you know, it, it helps me reach from way below so that I come <laughs> up. I'm trying to do it now. But with my How mouth. How big is your mouth? Ah, shut up. <laughs> How many times do I have to say that to one of my colleagues today? I said it to John Robbie and not to Chris. Never ever. <laughs> Let's go to Ruth in Ravonia. Hi there, Ruth. Uh, we know that different lengths of electromagnetic waves cause different degrees of harm to human tissue. And the latest one that's being talked about is electrosmog from photovoltaic panels. It's supposed to be generating a harmful radiation that we weren't aware of initially that harms people who are living in houses underneath the roofs where photovoltaic panels are mounted. It's particularly bad, they say, when the DC is converted to AC current, but it's bad anyway when the electricity is generated. Do you know how one protects oneself from it and how it can be reduced? Uh, Alaric, well, first of all, let's think about what the risk could be. So we're taking DC, direct current, off of a photovoltaic. This in, in and of itself is going to pose virtually no risk because the losses from DC in the form of these what we call hysteresis effects and uh, producing um, electromagnetic fields is going to be trivial, if, if almost nothing, because it's not a changing field. Uh, in other words, the current goes from one place to another. It doesn't go backwards and forwards like it does with AC. So the DC a- aspect of it is going to be of no threat whatsoever, I would think. The step you're talking about is the conversion of DC electricity through what we call an inverter to turn it into AC, or alternating current. And this is where, you, instead of it staying plus all the time and there's a plus and a minus wire, with AC it flips between plus and minus and... Th- by convention, the majority of grids use between 50 and, and 60 hertz, 60 or 50 cycles of that per second. That in and of itself is uh, unlikely also to produce major amounts of radiation that are going to cause a problem to you. Mm. Mains electricity has a wavelength of miles, uh, effectively, and so screening that out is very, very difficult. At the very high frequencies that you get with certain devices like Wi-Fi and microwaves, radio transmissions, that kind of thing, that can be screened out using a Faraday cage, but we're not really sure how this is affecting humans, if it is at all. You might remember there was a story we discussed here on 702 um, a month or so ago about uh, people showing that medium-wave radio affects the migration of birds. They showed that robins in Germany couldn't orientate themselves correctly to migrate on their seasonal migration when they were exposed to radio waves. But we don't know if humans are succumbing to the same sorts of brain-altering effects or whether this is exclusive to birds or other animals that are sensitive to magnetic signals. So at the moment we don't know what the impact of these sorts of signals will be on people. The amount of those sorts of signals coming out of the inverter on your photovoltaics, probably quite trivial, but if you are concerned then you could rig your house up as what they call a Faraday cage, which is a meshwork of material earthed and you live inside the meshwork of material and it soaks up all of the energy and stops it going into the airspace around you. Ari in Pretoria, good morning. Yes, morning. Um, hi, I just want to find out, um, ostrich feathers, um, can they be used to absorb solar energy and how would you be able to get your negative and positive out of them, you know? 
because uh, what I understood, the first solar panels were made with uh, strands of hair, and basically it's the same as a nail, um, and that would be the same as ostrich feathers. I haven't come across the use of ostrich feathers as uh, a means of generating electricity. Was it electricity you were referring to, or heat? Electricity. Oh, you know, yeah. to turn. Basically, what I want to try and do is, if uh, if that's the case, is to take ostrich feathers and try and use uh, these Coca-Cola bottles, these two-liter plastic bottles, and try and uh, work it in there and absorb the energy that's in there to to bring out the electricity in there. You yeah, know, I haven't come across that, anyone that trying to do that, uh, to be frank. Okay. Sorry about that. I've not, I've not, um, I've not managed to, uh, to come across anybody who's using ostrich feathers to generate electricity. But let me have a look and see if I can find out anything for you. I tell you what I'll do. Given that ostrich is a bird, I'll send a tweet from mm-hmm. at Naked Scientist, <laughs> and we'll see if uh, if anyone knows whether ostrich feathers can uh, produce electricity or be used to harvest electricity. I'm, I'm not aware of any such science, though. I have a, an, a tweet here and an SMS. The one tweet asks, why do people stutter? What causes stuttering? But Neil wants to know, have there been any advances in helping with stuttering in speech? We don't know exactly why people stutter, but we think it's something to do with the feedback loop inside the brain. When you play a person's own speech back to them with a delay of half a second or, or thereabouts, it makes it almost impossible for them to speak. And anyone who's ever been on the radio and then had an echo of their own voice coming back in their headphones, it's very, very hard to ignore it. And it does enormously disrupt what you're trying to say. And so one theory is that when people have a stammer or a stutter, the brain's own internal feedback system, which should be blanking out the presentation of what they're saying into the brain uh, to stop it disturbing you, because you effectively are listening to yourself after you've said what you had wanted to say and you're already thinking of what you're going to say next. So if you hear what you said before coming back at the wrong time, it could put you off. That system in some people may not work optimally, and so there's feedback into your speech generation circuit, and this disrupts your ability to concentrate not on what you're trying to say now, but what you are trying to say next, and this is what causes the failure of the speech to initiate each time. That's one theory. We do know and in support of that theory, that if you play white or pink noise, in other words, hissy noises, to drown out a a person's own speech and stop them attending to it, so that you tell them, just read something from a book or just say something, and you can't let them hear what they're saying, that seems to work. And so it does appear to add credence to this theory that it's in some way your own speech feeding back with a delay onto your speech circuit and stopping you initiating what you're going to say next. There are some techniques to help people to overcome the problem, and they are quite successful because what they effectively do is stop people concentrating on the fact that they're stammering because often it's a bit like if you think, I'm going to fall over, I mustn't fall over, the first thing you do is then panic because you think you're going to fall over and you trip. It's the same with speech. You think, I I want to not stammer, and so I will concentrate on not stammering, but then you're so worried about not stammering that it makes you stammer. And... These sort of distraction techniques and breathing techniques that help people to just focus on getting the words out without concentrating on what is or isn't going wrong can be enormously helpful to some people. Hmm. We've run out of time. Lerado in Marshalltown, I'm very sorry we couldn't take your question, but what we'll do is uh, take your number and see if you can be our first caller next week. Chris, have a lovely day. Oh, you too, Reedy, and everyone. Thanks for your great question. See you next week. Okay, awesome. Bye-bye.